Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, the title of the message today is The Good News of Marital Intimacy. (laughs) Sila. Awesome. Well, this we could have really titled it a Part two of Glorify God in Your Bodies. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 6. A couple things I want to say about um, this chapter that we're about to get into. I think it's going to take us three weeks to get through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we've broken it up into three blocks. Today we're going to talk about marital intimacy, sexual intimacy within marriage. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. So there's no rest for the weary. It only gets even more um, interesting. And then the final part of chapter 7, the third message out of chapter 7, we're going to speak about singleness in Christ. And so um, if you are single today, I want to encourage you as we talk about intimacy within marriage, don't write this off and say, oh, this isn't for me. Let's be a family here where we are more concerned about just our own needs. We, we care about the needs of our brother and sister in situations that might not directly apply to where we are in life. Look, look biblical truth applies to all of us wherever we are. And so uh, let, let's zero in on what God may be saying to us. T- today in particular, though, is difficult. It's, it's kind of like walking through a minefield, sort of metaphorically speaking. There's such It's really fraught with the possibility of misapplication or discouragement. And so so two things here before we we read the scripture and I pray and then we work back through it. I I just pray that a spirit of humility and meekness would really descend on this place. And particularly for me, uh, I want to hide behind the text today. These are strong words. These are difficult truths. And they intersect with our lives that are very much in process, mine in particular. As I speak about these things, know that you're listening to a person who has failed and is in the process of, of, of wrestling with these truths in his own life. And there are many times along this sermon where I imagine my wife could interrupt and raise her eyebrows and say, oh, oh, oh really? Come again? Say that again? How does that work? And I'm sure in a crowd this size, there are marriages in this room that are just tangled up. And there are probably single people in this room who are just dying inside with, with tension and stress and anxiety over this area and longing for this and struggling with how to work out your sexuality righteously. And there are people in this room that are divorced who this is a very tender and sensitive area for you. And next week will be as well. I just pray that humility and meekness would seize our hearts and that we would love one another by hiding, by obscuring ourselves behind the beauty and the richness of God's word, which is simultaneously severe and kind. And then, secondly, we need to lean hard into redemptive grace today. Do you realize, friends, that today is not about sex and marriage as much as it is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done to rescue us You realize our culture wants to define us as solely sexual beings, but do you realize that is just a component of our God-glorifying being that God has created for his glory and our joy? 
And so let's remember those things as we get into this. Well, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Then I'll pray, and then I've got four points for you today from this text. Paul writes this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we do thank you for your really spectacular kindness to us. I pray that amongst all the distractions that dominate our hearts, many of them, uh, the prosperity and the comfort and the blessing of our culture that draws our heart away deceptively to trust in those things rather than in the raw and rugged and beautiful truth of your word. I pray that you would give us the, the gift of focus today and the gift of humility and meekness. Lord, my heart is especially concerned about people in this room who are struggling mightily in these areas that we will speak about today for people that are maybe in very difficult marriages or people that may be single and having a very difficult time living out their sexuality righteously. And So Lord, would you be so kind as to season my words with grace but yet biblical authority. And God, ultimately today, I pray that our focus and attention would not dead end on one particular facet of our lives but that it would be a portal through which we see something much more magnificent than marital intimacy it would be a portal through which we see the glorious gospel of what you have done on the cross in Jesus for your glory and our joy so that we would leave this room today knowing who you are more clearly, that our affections for the married and the single and the young and the old, that our affections for Jesus would be stirred and that the Christian would be drawn closer into a picture of who you are so that their heart would be warmed and, and burn within them, God, so that they would subsequently worship you more passionately and therefore be a more bright light for you in a dark world. And God, for the person in this room that has not yet trusted in Jesus, and with a crowd this side 
size. Surely, Lord, there are people in this room who do not know you. God, would you do the greatest miracle of all? Would you cause them to turn from trusting in themselves or coddling some sin? And would you cause them to turn in faith and repentance to Jesus? Because you alone can satisfy And every person in this room is an immortal being, and heaven and hell hangs in the balance, Lord. So would you tune our hearts away from self-help and just the mere component of better marriages, and would you open up the horizons of our hearts and minds so that we might see Jesus and Him crucified and Him resurrected and Him ascending now, commanding all men everywhere to repent and enjoy the God of all creation. God, would you be so kind as to do that? And would you help me? I am so disqualified to be able to speak on these things in and of myself. But by your spirit, you have made me right with you, even as I am still very much in process. So, Lord, I pray that you would do these things for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Before I crank it up, let me point you to a couple resources. I'm not giving these away, by the way. These are uh, just a couple. I usually give books away, but we're very short on these. We've ordered some more, and so don't get your trigger hand ready to raise your hand. There's a couple books in the resource room that I'd like to point you to that I think will be very helpful. There's actually only two of them right now, but we've ordered a bunch more that will be in this week. A book by C.J. Mahaney, a pastor out of Maryland, the Washington, D.C. area that I respect very much. He's the leader of Sovereign Grace Ministry. He wrote a book called Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, subtitle, what every Christian husband needs to know. That's a good one for you. And then uh, one that I wish every uh, couple would read, every single person in this room would read, and every married person, young and old, would read. It's called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. It is a compilation of many different chapters from a variety of different contributors. And uh, it is a spectacularly helpful book uh, on these issues. It touches virtually every area of human sexuality, whether you're married, single, Um, So there's a couple of these in there. We're going to have more of these. And then a little pamphlet that we have in our little um, little pamphlet thing, Renewing Marital Intimacy, Closing the Gap Between You and Your Spouse. I'd highly recommend that you get those um, either today, be the first two there to get those two books, or uh, wait till next week and we'll have more. And also links to Amazon for those books are on our website for our, our, uh, our, our resource link on our website. All right, let's do one thing before we look at four twos before marital intimacy. Let's kind of handle an issue in verse one there. Paul writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is, quote, now he's quoting back to them something that they had written to him in a letter, and they had written to him in, at the church writing to him, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so this may be quite a twist, because you remember a couple weeks ago when we finished up with chapter 6, we looked at Paul's statement about sexual immorality and what was happening in the Corinthian church. Remember, we've talked about this for the last couple months in this letter to Corinthians, is that the Corinthian church was a very, very gifted church. Much talent, kind of an intersection of commerce and business and talented people. Uh, were part of this church. They were very gifted, but yet they were also very selfish and very carnal. And a particular portion of the Corinthian church were, were uh, as they became Christians, were still kind of living like the world sexually. And so at the end of chapter 6, we read about how there were at least people, some people in the Corinthian church that were just disregarding 
Paul's teaching and the gospel and, and, and uh, biblical wisdom on how we live our lives. And they were doing whatever they wanted to do. Some of them were, were actually bringing prostitutes in the temple and engaging in all sorts of wild sexual activity. And Paul very decisively at the end of chapter 6 counteracts that and refutes that. And that's what we talked about two weeks ago. Glorify God in your bodies. And now in chapter 7, he is responding to a letter written by this group of people within the Corinthian church who now have gone to the other extreme. Extreme. So there's one extreme as people just kind of doing whatever. It's kind of like a you know, you become a Christian, but you're still living like, a, you know, a Jerry Springer show. And then there is this other segment of the church who is, I mean, come on now, in every church there's some fundamentalists now. They have overreacted to the culture, and they are saying here in, in their letter to Paul that Paul's now quoting back to him. He's saying, now about what you guys wrote in your letter it is good for a woman not to have sexual, uh, good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul is not agreeing with that. In fact, as he begins chapter, or verse 2, he now begins a disagreement and logic against that. And so what's happening is the Corinthian church is made up of people of two extremes. There's the one in chapter 6 who are living their life however they want. And then you've got the fundamentalist folks over that, you know, thank God they're at least trying to live for Christ, but they have overreacted to it. And now they are viewing sexual relations in um, not the way that God intended them to be. In fact, they're just sort of isolating it for maybe just procreation and that there's no joy in it and that a man should not touch a woman at all. And Paul is emphatically trying to bring the church to the middle ground of God's truth in this uh, away from the two faulty extremes. And he says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so, okay, now that we've clarified that, that these two extremes, let's look now at four truths about marital intimacy. And friends, this is not rocket science. This is not rocket science although it might get a little hot when the engine cranks up. Point number one. First, I'm talking to you men. Point number one, I'm talking to us men. Men, your body is for your wife. Your body is for your wife. Let's read verses three and four again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. In the NIV, it says he should fulfill his marital duty. Conjugal, if you don't know what that word means, if you went to public school in Southern California like I did, it means that you serve her physically. You take care of her sexually, emotionally, that component of her life, that you serve her that way, that she has these rights and that you should serve her. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So point number one, men, your body is for your wife. Now before we get deeper into this, I think we need to pause and take note of the fact that we live in a particularly sexually polluted culture. Under the surface of our culture in the media and the internet and popular culture, there is just this sort of assumed notion 
that men are basically one tick above the chain of a dog in heat and that all men think about is just sex and how they might get it. And, subsequently, our culture views women as just valuable for how much physical attractiveness they have and how sexually desirable they may be to the men in the culture. And if we can be honest, these faulty and broken and false views of both men and women and their sexuality and their needs seep into our hearts subconsciously and in many instances really dominate our thinking about the essence of men and women more than the truth of scriptures. And so we, we need to enter into this I think kind of confessing that, realizing that if we are Americans that have a TV and actually go outside, which I think is all of us, I mean, you guys go outside if you don't have a TV, and you have, you have your past puberty, all of us are polluted sexually to some degree or another. And so in that context, then Paul writes to us, Men, your body is actually for your wife, not for yourself. Now, how does sexual selfishness work its way out in men? I think this is rather obvious. Men tend to walk into relationships with women and relationships with their mind with this sort of subconscious underlying assumption that I have needs that need to be met. Now, we're not going to get too nitty-gritty, but there, there is a difference between men and women to some degree about their sexuality and how it works out. And, and, and men sort of, I think, have bought into this faulty, selfish, me-oriented mindset that because of the way God made us and because of the physiological responses to sexual arousal that we have as men that I just have some needs that need to be met. Now certainly you do have some needs and they are intended by God to be met in marriage, but when that becomes the loudest and most central thing about your sexuality, that you've got this physiological impulse that needs to be met, when you bring that into marriage, it tunes us in men to a sort of beginning point of selfishness in marriage, and I think we need to repent of that. I think we need to acknowledge that, and I think we need to detox ourselves from that through the Bible and through redemptive community. Men, we cannot selfishly point to physiological differences or needs as a cop-out to insist that our needs be met. And so, the sexual sin of most men works itself out in sort of a ingrained and obvious selfishness that takes its direction in physical lust, in pornography, in self-satisfaction alone in your room, away from your spouse, 
And all of that takes the beautiful gift that God has given us of our gift of our bodies, which are not ours, but they're actually the Lord's that he has now intended to be used for our wife, and it turns it inward. Men, do we realize how really sort of instinctively selfish we are in our sexuality? We are. And against that point, the Bible gives us another orientation. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, let me read this verse to you, Ephesians chapter 5. You don't need to flip there, just listen to this verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Listen to this, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, verse 31, quoting Moses in Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Listen to this. Listen to what Paul does here. Listen, when he takes the relationship between a man and a wife and he blows it up to cosmic and eternal significance. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so clearly, Paul tells us that we, men, this is a weighty, weighty sentence. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. We could spend hours on just that one truth there, but let me just give you three ways that Christ loved the church, that men, we are to love our wives. Christ loved the church first. We didn't muster up enough willpower and say, Jesus, I think we're going to love you now. No, we love him, the Bible says, because he first loved us. And so men, for us to say to our wives that if you give me this, then I will give you that, that runs 180 degrees counter to the biblical truth of how men should love their wives. And I say that with a tremendous amount of conviction, knowing that many times I have expected my wife to give me something, and when she does, then I will return it with the thing that she needs. Men, it starts with you. You must be the initiators. Men and women are equal in essence before Christ, but they are different in their roles and men bear the responsibility, the symbol, the role of Christ in the marriage to treat the wife like Christ treats the church. And so what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but what comes first, a man's responsibility or a woman's? A man's. And so just as Christ loves the church first, men must love their wives first. Secondly, just a thought here on how Christ loves the church. He, he loves us sacrificially. He lays down his own rights for the sake of his church. And likewise, men must lay down their rights 
sacrificially for their women, for their wives. And then thirdly, how does Christ love us? He loves us forever, regardless of how, regardless of how unlovable we, we may be at any particular time in our life with him. And so, men, this means that regardless of how your wife may be acting or what she may look like now that she's not 22, you don't trade her in for a younger model. You don't look at your wife when she's 45 years old. And she's not quite as cute or shaped the way she was when she was 22. Guess what, Holmes? Neither are you. <laughs> you don't look at her and trade her in. Jesus doesn't treat the church that way. He doesn't treat you that way. And likewise, men that are living lives centered on the scriptures don't treat their wives that way as well. You don't trade her in just because she's difficult to live with now. You love her forever. Friends, I believe that's why the great truth of the perseverance of the saints, eternal security, is such an important thing for you, regardless of whether you stand on that issue. It's such an important thing for you to understand in your sanctification. Because Jesus promises to never leave you or forsake you, and that should be the underlying foundation of every Christian marriage. So... Men, your body is for your wife. Secondly, again, not rocket science. Second point about truth about marital intimacy. Conversely, women, your body is for your husband. Your body is for your husband. Now, if selfishness comes out in men by sort of demanding that their physiological needs be met, that the pressure in their body be released and they just need you to help them out, then how does female selfishness work its way out? Because women, you have it too. You're just so much better at hiding it socially. You're not quite as knuckle-headed as we are, but it exists in you as well. You were born in rebellion just like men were. And so how does female selfishness work its way out oftentimes. Not all the time, but oftentimes. Well, it works its way out by women using your body and the truth that you know that it is irresistible to a man and that it is a very powerful thing for a man using your body or sex as a tool to manipulate or to punish to get what you want out of a situation, that is often how sexual selfishness works itself out for women. Listen to what the scriptures say about how women should comport themselves with their adornment and with their body. Let me read to you. Now, these, are, these two verses, I think, ha should have wicks extended from them from the Bible because you, know, you could light them. It's like a little keg of dynamite. And I, I considered not reading these verses because we could go down a road, and we will have this discussion some other time. 
but uh, this, this is a powder keg of emotion, but it is God's truth. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. He's talking about the gathering together of the people of God, and he's saying men don't be distracting by getting in fights outside the church and anger with each other. And then he says in verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, let me stop there and say that um, I am concerned that you might misinterpret this, especially if you are in this room and you are a woman and you are wearing gold or your hair is braided. (laughs) Don't wiggle. Don't sweat. It's okay. I believe that what's going on in this text is that Paul is specifically dealing with a couple things. Number one, he is dealing with women and men as they gather together in corporate worship. He's saying, men, don't fight with one another because it becomes a distraction to the corporate worship. And he's saying, women, don't do anything with your comportment that could potentially draw men away. And in the context in Ephesus, in this particular church that Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy, in that culture, men, women during that time would signify their social status or their alignment with a particular social group, oftentimes by wearing braided hair or gold and pearls. Now, that is not necessarily the point or the context in our culture today, although it could be. Now, for a much better and deeper explanation of this verse, I would commend to you women a message by C.J. Mahaney, the the pastor who wrote this book, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God. It is a message on this particular scripture, 1 Timothy 2. The title of the message is The Soul of Modesty. We have some CDs in the resource room, about 20 of them that Robert made this morning that are free for you to take. We will also link it in the message notes and we will have more of them available free for you to take women. I would hope that every young woman, every middle-aged woman and every old woman, every mother of every daughter, every daughter of every mother, every woman would listen to this message of wisdom. Every father of every daughter would listen to this message, The Soul of Modesty by C.J. Mahaney. But let's now get back to the point, friends, is that, is that do you see how where Ephesians 5 points, women, points men away from their selfishness in their relationships with their wives or really in relationship with all women, this verse points women away from their selfishness. Women, you do not realize just how powerful your body is. You do not realize even just how powerful this particular area of skin or this particular area of skin is or a form, a tight-fitting pair of pants. Or You do not realize how intoxicating and seductive that is for the heart of a young man whose body, or an old man, whose body is raging with desires that this world is trying to feed into so that he will express and destroy himself with. And for you, whether intentionally or in ignorance, to not be aware of that and comport yourself, as Paul writes to Timothy here, with respectable modesty and self-control is for you 
again, whether you are doing it in ignorance or whether you're doing it maliciously, which is worse, is for you to manipulate the situation and for you to be self-serving with your body, which is not yours. It's God's. And if you were married, he has given it for the enjoyment of your husband and your husband alone. And so women, your body is not your own. Now, I, I listen. Because we live in mostly a male-dominated culture, and most of male wickedness and self-absorption sort of dominates our culture, because we live in a culture where more money is spent on pornography than on Major League Baseball and basketball and football combined. I understand how vulnerable and how uh, taken advantage of, I think, the average woman may feel in this area. I am not asking you to be a doormat or to be run over by male domination. I am I'm merely trying to redeem both male and female sexuality through these scriptures. I understand the defensiveness and vulnerability that many women may feel, but consider, sisters, you are allowing, many of you, the brokenness of a male-dominated culture to dictate and hold more sway in your life than the command of God in His Word. You considered that? You are reacting more to male sin than you are to God's way. <laughs> this is one reason why it is so important that you go slow and that you not marry the first knucklehead that tells you he loves you. But we don't have time for that rabbit trail. Some other time. So men, your body is for your wife. Women, your body is for your husband. So before we move on to the third point, let's pause and consider a few things. Let's just confess and think about how absolutely, completely contrary this is to the mindset of this world. I'm a man, I have needs. And I'm going to marry the best looking girl I can, and I'm going I'm to feast on her and I'm, I'm going to demand sex and it's for me and if she doesn't give it to me uh, I'll maybe either find it somewhere else or I'll just take care of myself. Think about how unbelievably selfish that orientation is. And if you're a woman and you, know, you realize very early on how powerful the tool of your body is, you're just going to use that for your advantage, sister. Do what you got to do. Hold it out. Make them weep. Do you realize how completely contrary that is to the scriptures? Our bodies are not our own. That quote from Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch prime minister at the beginning of the 1900s, where he says something to the effect of, there is not a single molecule in this whole world and universe of all that is that Jesus does not rightly cry, Mine! That applies to our bodies, our breath, our sexuality, our conversations, our computers, everything. And friends, if you are single here, I want you to consider this as well. Do you realize this applies to you as well? You may be thinking, well, I'm not married, so who does my body belong to? It 
belongs to God. In, in, in chapter 6 that we read a couple weeks ago, at the end of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, it says, do you not know, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. But we grow up in probably the most selfish of all civilizations, where we grow up with this sort of self-determinism, where we care more about individual rights because we're Americans than we do about God's glory. And so we're born into this wicked mindset that says, I can do what I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Friends, do you realize that the person that is most important that we don't harm and offend is God? And so if you are single, this applies to you as well. Your sexuality is a gift that was never meant to terminate on you but it was meant to be shared with your spouse. And so you don't get a sort of free pass on this if you are not married. Well, let's go on to point three. Marital intimacy guards our hearts from sin. Let me read verses two and five again. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, and I love the way the Bible does this. It, it, it just has this beautifully glorious view of what human sexuality is for. It's for the glory of God and the display of the gospel. But yet in his kindness and mercy, God also, even though he wants to lift our eyes to this beautiful truth of how much bigger our sexuality is, in his kindness and grace, he also descends into the rugged life that each of us live. And he gives us sort of this incarnational reality to this truth as well because he doesn't want to just make it all about his glory. He also wants to bless and protect his people. And so here's what he says in verse two and five. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then in verse five, he says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again I love how practical this is because he knows, men, that you have needs. And he knows, women, that your heart has needs and your body has needs. He says, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so not only does God want this glorious cosmic reality about the glory of God and sex, but he also descends into our sanctification and he says, do this, live this way for your own protection. And so marital intimacy guards our hearts from sin. Now let's get back to male and female selfishness for a second and how we often go so quickly to sin, how temptation grabs men. Well, I think for men, it is a more acute and physical lust that grabs our hearts, a more visual sort of lust, although I am not downplaying the physical component of sexual temptation for women. I think that women... Uh, are just as physically wired for sex as men. Again, you guys are just more couth and mature and you don't talk about it as much publicly. But I think that for us to say that sexual intimacy is just physical for men and emotional for women is a distortion of the truth. Certainly there are differing components to it. But, but I think we can all agree that probably men are more swayed by images and by sort of acute physical lusts which takes form in all sorts of manner of destructive vices, pornography, flirtatious relationships that end in affair, um, 
having sex with yourself in a room by yourself? How does it grab women? Why do, why do women's heart need to be protected? I think that women are just as susceptible to lust, but it's a more emotional lust. And I think you are in some ways more danger, in more danger than men because it is a more acceptable social lust. You see, we all realize that men shouldn't be downloading pornography and you know, blowing their life on that, but women, do you realize that this culture is aimed at your heart to seduce you as well? Do you realize that TV shows like The Bachelor, that is emotional pornography for you. Do you realize that? It's drawing your heart away. These stupid vampire shows. <laughs> Twilight. What is that? It is emotional pornography for you girls. Do you realize that it is creating a unrealistic view of what, of what masculinity is. It's this sort of effeminate but yet strong, hairless man <laughs> who wants to suck your blood, but he loves you so much that he resists to the... Friends, that is... Do you realize how destructive that is, girls? It is emotional poison for you. And you feast your eyes on smut. And you beat up a guy because he's downloading porn. But you're watching this stupid show called The Bachelor, which is completely unrealistic. And what happens then, listen to me, what happens then is your heart begins to be dissatisfied with your husband. Because he's a little pudgy and he's got dirt under his fingernails and he scratches and he stinks. <laughs> He's a man. <laughs> and so we beat guys up for their fantasy worlds. But do you realize, realize, women, that your fantasy world is just as toxic and just as poisonous and just as destructive? And God's design is for this sort of rugged, beautiful connection in marriage that guards our hearts from this. Friends, be, we need to be sober-minded. I think we grew up in this cultural Christian world, many of us, where sin and Jesus' death and the brutality of the crucifixion, and the reality of the resurrection, and the reality of Satan is not often preached. As much as I believe in the reality of heaven and in the glory of Christ, I believe in the reality of a Satan who wants to s destroy you. He wants to steal. He wants to loot. He wants to sack your life and poison you and drag you away. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, be watchful, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Friends, we do not live in a neutral universe one of the great tactics of the enemy is to create a sort of, sort of false illusion that things are basically okay. They are not. There is a real enemy who wants to destroy you. Men, there is a real enemy who wants to pollute your life, to make you so dissatisfied with your wife, to make you so selfish in your orientation that eventually 20 or 30 years into it, you'll just sort of give up. 
And women, do you realize that there is an enemy who wants to probe the inner depths of your heart and put little notions in your heart to make you progressively more dissatisfied with your husband, longing for some lifetime movie network show or romance novel or some false image of a man through some stupid TV show that will then enable you less to give your man what he needs and it becomes a downward spiral of selfishness that leads to destruction. And this isn't because of moral neutrality. This is because there is a real enemy who wants to destroy your soul, your marriage, your sexuality, and everything that is good from God. Do you realize that? And do you realize you can't just float through life Going to the gym and blowing money on a tanning bed and flirting and doing what you want to do and living like you want to live and then eventually kind of square yourself away. Do you realize when you do that, you are straight smack dab in the middle of the devil's plan for your life? And God in his graciousness might even right now very graciously be calling you out of that so that you would look up and see the redemption and the joy and the satisfaction and the glory that is in Christ. And I say those things harshly and directly so that the Holy Spirit hopefully might get your attention to stop living for yourself. Truth number four, and we'll end on this. Marital intimacy glorifies God and displays the gospel. Marital intimacy glorifies God and displays the gospel. Uh, you know, I always have this burden in every message I preach to somehow get to the gospel. My theological and historical hero, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor in London in the mid-1800s, said that his goal when he preached was to open the Bible, explain the text, and take a hard right to the cross. Because we as Americans have this particular uh, tendency to make biblical truth sort of dead end on us by making it sort of a functional truth that will help us live better. And so we boil down the truth of God's glory in the universe into a very self-serving set of truths that help us live a sort of better life here in America. Friends, that is not the orientation of the Bible. The Bible orients us towards the glory of God and the goodness of God in saving people who have rebelled against him through Christ's work on the cross. And so today, it's not about just better sex lives and marriages or repenting if you're single and cleaning yourself up. And it's not about that. It's not about just stop watching a TV show that poisons you. It's about something far bigger this is the most important truth of all the four that we've handled today because everything, friends, everything, all truth exists and is tethered to a far greater truth. And the truth of God's goodness in sexual intimacy and our, our admonition to live those things out is tethered to something bigger than just our Satisfaction or protection is tethered to the display of God's goodness for all mankind. This is, way, this is the way Paul puts it in Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That means baseball and automotive mechanics. and uh, It means the guy who 
who makes the, the little plastic thing around the end of your shoelace, whatever those things are, who makes those things? The guy who's in a factory doing that right now, politics, medicine, finance, sex, everything exists for the glory of God. Our lives are not made up of individual silos. Do you see that? It's not like good finances over here, giving the missions over here, sexual intimacy over here, controlling my anger over here, you know, whatever, over here. It is all, think of a wheel. The hub of the wheel is what God has done in Christ on the cross. And emanating from that hub are spokes of every aspect of truth in life that all connect back to the gospel. And friends, listen to me carefully, friends. This is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God and what he has done on Christ, in Christ, on the cross. The gospel can be summarized in four words very briefly. The first word is God. God is the center of everything. He is most magnificent. He is unexplainable. God, in his greatness, created all that is. He, he never began. He will never end. He has always been. He is outside of our ability to reason. But yet he, trans he condescends into our life and and he creates as the pinnacle of his creation men and women, you and me. And he gives us this image of himself and he gives us dominion over the earth and the Bible records that all of us, not just Adam and Eve, but all of us since then except for Jesus have turned away from his glory and we have rebelled and we have sinned and we have become idolaters, meaning we have worshipped ourselves and created things over the creator. And the consequences of that rebellion which all of us have participated in is spiritual death and separation from God. And in response to that, God sends Jesus to live the perfect life that you and I should have lived, to obey him in ways that we disobeyed, to store up righteousness so that he would become a holy and acceptable sacrifice. He is God in the flesh, and he lives the life acquainted with everything that we are acquainted with, and he willingly lays down his life as a sacrifice, a substitute on the cross, appeasing God's anger and wrath against our rebellion for all those that would turn and trust in him. And Jesus becomes the lamb on the cross. He dies. He substitutes for us. He bears God's wrath. He extinguishes it. He satisfies it to the end. And then he rises again in victory three days later over death and sin and all of its consequences he ascends to the right hand of his Father where he now, the Bible says, commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn and trust in him, to trust in what he has done as the sole merit for their right standing before God. Friends, do you realize that's the gospel? Not just coming to church, not just believing in the Christian message, but actually trusting in what Jesus has done and not in yourself. And then do you realize then that when you trust in him, you become a new creation and all of your life is now tethered to what he has done for you. And every aspect of joy, every aspect of eternity, every good thing is tethered to that. And now you are able to live and are on a trajectory of sanctification and ultimate glorification before God where you will stand before him right one day where everything in your life, whether it is your money or your sexuality or your temper or your personality or your gifts, all is tethered to the glory of God in Christ, friends. Do you see that? And so the point is, 
is that all of what we're talking about today is a display of God, which is the most satisfying thing that every human being can participate in. And God graciously calls us and gives us the gift of sexuality so that we might display him and enjoy him forever. As the beautiful church document, the Westminster Confession or Catechism of Faith faith says that the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. Well, a few encouragements and then we'll be done. To the frustrated and less than fulfilled married couple, can I encourage you, husband, to sometime this afternoon or week to saddle up next to your wife who hopefully has not been elbowing you this whole service <laughs> and graciously and humbly say, Honey, how, how might I serve you better in this area? And wife, after he answered, asks you that question, might you be so humble and gracious as to ask him, after you answer him gently, without a verbal bazooka, <laughs> to then ask him, how might I serve you better? And hopefully he hasn't been sitting next to you saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, I have needs. Hopefully he has been humble here too. Can I recommend that maybe you get this book, Sex and the Supremacy of God, which has chapters for husbands and wives, and read them together and consider working through the awkwardness. Some of you might be saying, oh, Brad, you don't, no, that's, <laughs> that's not me, man. I, I couldn't do that. That would be awkward. That would be, that'd be tough. That would be uncomfortable. Men, you know how to be uncomfortable. You'll get up at 4 o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold and sit in a chair in a tree. (laughs) Wait for hours, shoot something that doesn't die immediately, and you will chase it through the woods. And then you'll drag it back. You know how to be uncomfortable. You mean to tell me you can't saddle up next to your wife, fight through some awkwardness, humble yourselves, and have a discussion with her about how you might guard one another's hearts for the glory of God and your joy? You mean to say you can't do that? You're wrong, bro. You can do that. You're a man. Be a man. Don't waste, thank you. Don't waste. (laughs) Don't waste your life on recreation. If the Holy Spirit is tapping you on the shoulder right now, do it. James 4, 17, to him who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Right now the ball's in your court, brother. You're the initiator. Don't wait. Don't be passive. Male passivity is the curse of our culture. Have a conversation. She won't care if you're nervous, if you're fidgety. Her heart will leap with joy at the initiative that you take. Have the conversation. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and serve your wife. Second encouragement is to the married or single person that is engaged. 
in sexual activity outside of marriage. To the married or single person in this room that right now is engaged in sexual activity outside of your marriage. I beg of you, repent. You are headed in a path of destruction. Turn from your sin and come to a gracious Jesus who offers you forgiveness and restoration. Do not presume upon God's grace. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. We read that a couple weeks ago. Do not think that you can always repent later. You never know. The next time that you blatantly sin against God may be the time that the Lord gives you over to the hardness of your heart. Do you realize, friends, that repentance is a gift from God that only He can give, not something that you muster up yourselves? And so if you are tangled up in sexual sin, repent. And I think that means you need to have a conversation with some trusted Christian, one of the elders at this church, a leader at this church, a brother or sister that you can trust, and your spouse. Turn from that. Don't keep going down the path that you're going. I beg you. I beg you. Single person, if you're tangled up in this outside of your marriage, or outside of, obviously you're not married, but you're engaged in sexual activity before marriage, I have much compassion for you. I know your struggle very, very well. God is able. You are more than a sexual creature. If you're a Christian, do you realize that Ephesians 2.10 says that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works? which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. We realize it's a struggle. I know a righteous man may fall six times, but he raises again seven. Give your life to community. Give your life to accountability. Turn from selfishness and turn to a good and gracious God who wants what is best for you in all areas of your life. Well, let's pray. Father, these are weighty words. Would you now do two things? For Christians in this room who are to some degree less than they need to be in this area, which I suppose is every Christian, would you stir our hearts with affection for your glory and the joy that rests there. Lord, for the young guy who is caught up in lust and seems like he is never gaining victory over this thing, Lord, would you count today as the day when you, by your Spirit, did a miraculous work in his heart for his sanctification, Lord. And would he do something? Would he go to a brother? Would he go to an older brother? Would he go to somebody more mature in the faith? And would he 
open himself up to accountability and community like he never has before. And God, would you begin today, today would you do a work in that young Christian man's life? And Lord, to the young lady that's in this room that is giving her heart away to broken poison that Hollywood is pumping into her heart, God, would you convict her? Would you make her so uncomfortable next time she turns on that stupid garbage so that, Lord, her heart would be tuned into you? God, would today be the day that a woman who is caught up in emotional despair and poison, would you begin the process of tuning her heart into satisfaction in you alone? So God, would you do that for the Christians in this room? God, would you sanctify us? through your word and through community and through relationships with other Christians. And Lord, for the person in this room who's not yet a Christian, would you take these words and would you magnify them to something far bigger than just sexual intimacy and sin and would you show them that they need Jesus? Would you show them that right now you command them to repent? that you give them the very thing that they need, which is faith, that, Lord, if you have opened up their ears right now, you have given them the thing that they need, which is trust in you. So, friend, Lord, Lord, would you cause my friend in this room who right now may not yet be a Christian to turn and trust in Jesus, to turn from their sin, to repent of their selfishness, and to trust in the good God who has good things for them. Lord, I pray that you do that for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.